0: All right, we are just going to go through the chapter 2 in Ephesians tonight. I did a message on the 25th of June earlier this year, where we talked about the power of grace, and we were looking in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I want to go through those verses again, but it's my goal to get through 11 through 22. Every time I find myself reading a particular chapter in the Bible, especially in a really good section that just speaks very strongly. I mean, they're all very good, but it just makes me want to go through the entire book. But we have a, I have a plan of what I want to do for the rest of the year as far as uh, verse-by-verse studies. But the book of Ephesians is a very special book, especially the first three chapters. If you study the writings of the apostle Paul, Paul was, he was always put behind the eight ball in people's minds, and you can understand why. He was persecuting the, uh, the church heavily. Um, as a matter of fact, there were people who feared him when he first came into their cities and in their towns and was teaching in the synagogues and stuff because of his reputation. Before his name was Paul, his name was Saul, and he was the one who held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death. And he had a reputation from his own testimony. He said this twice in the book of Acts, that he persecuted the church he sentenced people. He brought witness against people that led to their um, guilty verdict. And uh, he, he basically sentenced people to their death. And now to see a complete change in his life, because he's put his trust in Jesus Christ, and God said very clearly that, I have a plan for you. Uh, you're going to suffer greatly, but you're going to speak before kings. And that's exactly uh, what he did. But you see that there is something always with Paul in the way that he writes. For example, if you study the book of Romans, you can see this is really a defense. He sets up all the reasons for why salvation is the way that it is, how it's available for all, and just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're automatically saved. You have to come to a change of mind just as the Gentile does. He goes through in the book of Colossians and speaks the same way. In the book of Galatians is another very um, defense-minded approach to the Scriptures. And that's how the Holy Spirit led him to write, because he was always defending something. If it wasn't uh, salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, then he was defending uh, the fact that he was an apostle. As a matter of fact, Trent and I recorded a video last week um, where we were answering verses that people use out of context to prove that salvation is by works. And in the book of Second Corinthians, in chapter 13, Paul is once again defending his apostleship. In verse 3, he says, you're looking for a proof that Christ is in me. And then he goes on into verse 5, and he says, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Now, a lot of people look at that and say, see, you've got to really look and see if you're really obedient to see if you've really believed. But that's not why Paul is writing. He's writing because he knows if they were to take a look at how they are in the faith, they're in there because of their faith in Christ, which is what he preached. So they were bringing some type of inaccurate criticism against him and he's having to defend himself having to defend himself and a lot of his writing is like that and i don't think paul took issue with that we know from first corinthians chapter 2 that the only thing he wanted to make known about himself was jesus christ and him crucified the man was totally selfless he gave up his entire life to do his missionary trips and to reach people with the gospel but ephesians is different especially the first three chapters it reads differently because it's more of a prayer and it talks about our position in Christ. It talks about how this election that has been given to those that believe is really in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is to say, that God decided to save people by their response uh, of faith. And he has said those who will trust in his son, he's predestined them into eternal life, that they will be found in his son, they will be declared justified righteous immediately and he's going through paul is going through he writes a beautiful chapter in in chapter one where we have great verses like we're sealed with the holy spirit the moment upon belief but when he gets to chapter two he starts to change his tone and it's still from the attitude of prayer and appreciation and thanksgiving and really the worship of god but he begins to change it and he's he, he's addressing the gentiles i don't want to say specifically but there's a lot to talk about the Gentiles' conversion. I want to look at a couple of verses in the passage 1 through 10, and then we're going to go verse by verse through the rest of the chapter in in verses 11 through 22. But I want you to see in verse 3, or excuse me, um, yeah, verse 3, "...among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." Now, he's speaking here to the Gentiles, but this is true of everybody, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. We have a sinful nature that we're born into, and this is all that we have until we put our trust in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was teaching to Nicodemus, this is what Nicodemus was not understanding. There was something that was not clicking. Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, I'm old. How can I go back into my mother's womb if I'm already born? And Jesus specifies his illustration by saying, you're born of water, but you need to be born of the Spirit. And that comes by verse 16, which is in that chapter, when you believe. Now, it's not to say how much Nicodemus understood at that time, because after, I think it's verse 7 or 8, there's nothing else recorded about Nicodemus in that conversation, but we do know later he showed up at Jesus' death and was with Joseph of Arimathea to take his body off the cross and bury him. So at some point it it struck for Nicodemus and he understood. But we have this sinful nature that we're born with and it's all that we have and it's by God's grace that we even have the ability to be saved. It's not by his grace that he chose us, it's by his grace that he made it available to all. That's what grace is. It's getting what we do not deserve. We, We as sinners, we deserve to spend an eternity separated from God in hell. You cannot let a sinner... Into the new heaven and the new earth. Can't happen because everything that is sinful brings corruption. And it's just a matter of time. And I think it's pretty crafty that the devil has deceived people into thinking there are only good things in the world or that there are only good things within man. We just have to figure it out. And that's how the Antichrist is going to deceive people. Of course, he's going to cater to their sin, but uh, they're going to worship him as God and they're going to think everything he does is good. Revelation chapter 13 says that he's going to suffer a deadly wound and, and, and come back from it. There's going to be a lot of deception, a lot of uh, corruption that goes around people, but there's this idea that man is inherently good. We just have, it's the government that makes us bad. It's money that makes us bad. It's, uh, you know, religion that makes us bad. Some people would make a case for that. But really what makes us inherently wicked is ourselves. We are the problem. We are the problem, and even in the midst of our problem, God demonstrated grace. I love in Genesis chapter 6 when it describes Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, God chose him into eternal life, but God had favor with him and used him in a great way. He believed, and there there is a guarantee for that belief. But here in verse 3, this is a very good description of who we are before Christ and a very good description of what we can continue to be if we live in sin even after our salvation. We should not be this way because of verse 4. If verse 4 is true, this should encourage us to live a disciplined life. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. How does that quickening happen? That word quickening, it's an old archaic word. We don't use it as often uh, anymore. Practically, we don't use it at all. But it means to be made alive. And it's used first in this passage in verse 1. And you, have ye quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he goes on to explain their condition. He said, because of God's mercy, you've been raised again to walk in, as Romans says, and Romans 6 says, uh, this newness of life. What does he mean by that here? When you trust on Jesus Christ, you are alive unto God. You were dead before. Why? Because you only had that sinful nature. And it's by God's grace that he has demonstrated mercy to us. It's not by God's grace that he has chosen us, the Calvinists likes this passage. They like this book because they try to prove that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. God has chosen his son. And those who put their trust in Jesus Christ are placed into his son. That's the doctrine of election. As a matter of fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find the word elect or election in the Bible that refers to salvation specifically, that God picked who he would save and picked who he would not save. As a matter of fact, you're going to see... Almost every time that that word elect or election is used, it's into a specific service, into a specific role. Jeremiah, for example, in the womb, was going to be that prophet. Jacob and Esau had purposes in which they would fulfill. Salvation always comes down to the individual's response to the grace that God has demonstrated. And if we were to think this way, I think it would help us in the way we view the sinful, wicked world. God loves those people that hate you and me. And I'm not talking about... He loves them like we think about love, like, oh, I'm just going to tolerate it, but deep down inside, I, I, I hate these people. That's, that's not what it is. God has shown His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That should soften your heart to the people who are out there protesting for you know, abortion rights and for the LGBTQ move, movement and all that kind of stuff. The people that do their very best to discourage you by getting in your personal space. I've seen street evangelists who are just holding up signs, you know, of a truth, um, get spit on, get swung on, you know, they're, they're beaten, all this kind of stuff. It's hard to look at somebody like that and say, yeah, I love them. But the way that you can love those people is you see what God has done for you. That he's demonstrated grace to you and to me and to those people who will reject him. He still offers the free gift of eternal life. Otherwise, no one could be saved. Because there would have to be some type of standard of goodness that you would have to meet in order for God to save you. We're all sinners. We're all fallen short of the glory of God. And I think it's very deceitful when we think, well, they're so wicked and so bad. There's no way that God would love them. Well, you and I are not any different. Maybe to the degree on man's scale of judgment, we differ, right? A liar is different than someone who's a mass murderer, okay? Those two people are different, but in the eyes of God the lie or the murder separates that person from him. There needs to be a blood atonement for that sin that needs to cover it fully. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for the world. But it's not imputed to a person's account until they believe, and as we've talked about that word, when they place their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the quickening it's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's the birth of the new nature, which in 1 John 3.9 says, is born of God and cannot sin. Then you see in verse 6 here, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I think this is a great picture of our eternal security. There are things that are guaranteed to happen that have not yet happened, but they are going to happen because of our positioning in Christ. Jesus said it in John 6 40, I'm going to raise you again at the last day, those of you who believe. I'm paraphrasing what he said there, but this means that at the end of it all, whether it's going to be at the rapture, those who have died before in the church age, get their new body or the tribulation saints who die and get their new bodies, whatever it may be at the end of the millennium, however that may go. We can take a look at this and say, regardless of when you will have a new body. You will sit together. And positionally, you're already there. Now, I don't want to get into like dimensions, studying all that, or parallel universes, because I don't think that's what this means. I think it's speaking from a point of guarantee. We are already in this position. It doesn't matter how well you finish. That does not change your positioning. But it should influence how you go through progressive sanctification here. That should influence. We should not act like people that we have been delivered from. It's an important understanding. And then I want you to see in verse 7, what's the purpose of all this? That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The crowning achievement that will bring God praise, honor, and glory is his ability to save sinners. He's made us a new creature. We are brand new when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Who gets the glory there? God gets the glory through His Son, not you and me. Well, I will tell you, this helps tremendously when you're thinking about how should I view myself. I see people in a negative sense. They're very down on themselves. Uh, people who are saved, they they, I call it the humble brag, and I think you've seen it before. They're very vocal about how horrible they are, or whatever it may be. And at the end of the day, it's like, you're really just bringing things back onto yourself. You can live a quiet and peaceful life if you recognize the grace that has been given to you, the mercy that's been given to you. You can be slow to anger when you realize how much you've been delivered from. You almost say, well, who, you know, who am I to, to judge? I need to bring people under the knowledge of the truth. Because at the end of the day, I'm not going to get the glory. You're not going to get the glory. Jesus is going to get the glory. And I am totally fine with that. And if I'm not fine with that, when I die and I'm with the Lord, I'll be fine with it. (laughs) Because that sinful nature will be gone. But looking at what, uh, what it says in verses 8 through 10 here. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We quote these verses all the time. We know these verses, but when you study them in context, it is a reminder that our method of salvation has nothing to do with ourselves. This is significant. Remember how we were talking about this is, this is kind of aimed toward Gentiles? They, he, Paul is reminding them their conversion has nothing to do with who they are. Because for years, the Gentiles have heard criticism from the Jewish people because they're the unclean ones, they're the heathen ones, those of the uncircumcision and the Jews of the circumcision. And a lot of that had leaked into society, and it definitely leaked into the higher ranking religious leaders in Israel to where they were positioning themselves as highly favored before God because of who they were and the physical things that they had done, like circumcision, like keeping the law. They attained, or they attributed those works to their inherited position of righteousness. But Jesus calls that out very quickly. John says it too, oh ye generation of vipers, what's it going to take for you to change your mind? I'm sure that really uh, made them feel welcome, warm and fuzzy inside. But he was exposing the inward nature, which is what? Separated, dead, vile, wicked, you're a sinner. No matter how cleaned up you are on the outside or how you may appear to be, you still have that condition within you. And you're saved not by cleaning that up, This is what Paul is saying here, especially, you're saved by grace, which refers back to what he said in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he has loved us. This is how we're saved, that God has offered his son, he's accepted his son's payment for our sin. And you receive that, how? Through faith. And it is the gift of God. uh, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This puts these two things on the opposite spectrum. It's not of yourselves, this grace that you have received. It's from God. You receive it by faith. It's been given to you by grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. And he says, again, he reiterates this, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. This defines the we. Okay? This is referring to a group. People who have trusted in Jesus Christ We are the masterpiece of God who were created first in Christ Jesus. And how did that come about by a study of the context here? By faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a purpose in which we are created in this way, unto good works. Now, people stumble and trip and bumble over this. You don't have to if you understand the proper placing. The good works that are mentioned here are not good works to prove that you're saved. They're good works so that you you need to live and use this new nature that you have. God's going to hold you accountable to it. And what you do in this earth, it'll go into two categories. After you've trusted Christ, it'll go into two categories. Wood, hay, and stubble. Unprofitable. Gold, silver, and precious stone. Profitable. They're going to be tested by fire. Whatever survives through, you receive a reward for that. I also believe, although it's hard to prove this, but it makes sense to me, that the way that you perform in this life here will determine how you will rule and reign with Christ. I think there's a lot of people in this age of the church right now that are taking their life for granted. This life that we have, they're wasting it on foolish pleasures and on sin. A very hedonistic culture would be a good description of America. Do whatever makes you happy. I was listening to some street preacher, and it was a short clip, probably about 30 seconds, but he was standing on a street corner, and he had some sign-up that was very offensive to somebody who believes there is no God. It's so funny. They want their First Amendment rights to bash the Christian, but the Christian can't say what he believes is true. His rights are out the door. But he's he's in this guy's face. He's pointing at him. He's like, I don't know why you're talking about Jesus. You know, (laughs) he says some choice words. I'm trying to really think of some opposite words, but only the words are coming to mind. But you can understand, you you can probably conclude to what he was saying. And he was basically saying, you're just following the teachings of one man. How silly is that that you're following one person? And this guy who's getting all this verbal abuse and stuff, he's a pretty smart guy. He says, hang on, you're doing the same thing. He's like, I'm not following anybody. I'm just doing what I think is right. He's like, there's the one person you're following, you. I'm following Jesus. And the video ends this way. He says, I'm I'm following the teachings of Christ because I think he's better than you. I don't know what happened after that because the video was done. Obviously, it was edited in such a way to bring that kind of value, that little zing on the end, you know? But it's true. People that are saved, they want to become a disciple. They follow after the teachings of Jesus Christ, this law of liberty that is described to us in many places in the Bible. And the people who don't live after Jesus Christ, they follow some other God, little g-God. They follow themselves. They, and there's no difference in the singularity of following, but here's, here's the, the problem. Which one is right? How has man done by himself so far? Pretty poor. It's a bad record. If you follow that guy's teaching to its logical conclusion, if somebody thinks their life is more important than yours and decides that you should not be alive and they follow their own intuition and kill you, they've done nothing wrong. They're just doing what they think is right. That's a lot of the argument behind what's going on in abortion law today. That's a lot of the argument in what's going on with uh, defending your right to uh, bear arms. It's a dangerous path to follow. But the Christian is a creation in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose, to do good works, to bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. And the Bible says, too, those rewards that we receive, at some point, we will, bring, we will cast them back. Not in a rude way or inconsiderate, but because he's going to get all the praise, honor, and glory. I think there's a lot of Christians who are just living their lives in, in cruise control, and uh, they're not looking uh, up at their surroundings. Look what it says at the end of 10 which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. These opportunities, this expectation to do good works, God has given us these opportunities that we should walk in them, and not every Christian will, and that's a shame. But you don't worry about that. You do what God is telling you to do. Dr. Arnold is here tonight, so I'm sure he'll appreciate this, but I've, learned a, I've, I've got a lot of great little nuggets of wisdom from him. But one of the things that was always consistent when I would talk to him about situations or whatever, when we're talking about ranch or whatever it may be, he would always tell me, I just want you to do what the Lord is telling you to do. And it took a while for that to sink in. I mean, I would do that. But to understand what he meant by that is, if, 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 if I'm told to do what God is telling me to do, I need to know what he's telling me. I need to know his word. Because if I'm just kind of running around outside, screaming at the sky, thinking that God is going to strike me with some kind of new revelation, I'm the fool in that situation. I already have instructions here. But if I'm going to follow his advice to do what God is telling me to do, I need to know what he's telling me and that's going into his word. Putting myself in the path where I obey him. And God is at; he, he has already set those things up for me. He's asking me to obey. And so what's, what's the choice? You either obey or you disobey. The motive of our salvation is grace. And there's a new positioning that happens because of faith in Christ. That's where we're going to do the rest of our study. Look in verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh... Now when he says the flesh here, he's not talking about the sinful nature. He's talking about physically they're born as Gentiles, not as Jews. He explains that a little further by going into another title for the Gentiles who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Obviously, circumcision was something that every Jewish boy went through as a procedure that marked them as a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And there were many people who thought, well, I got circumcised, so therefore I'm going to be in now. No, that was just a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. But he's he's saying here, many people called you uncircumcised, and the inference here is that they were outside the realm of being saved. This is why the Judaizers came in to Galatia, the Gentile region, and they started poisoning the gospel by saying, oh, but you've got to follow the Mosaic law too in order to be saved. You know, you've got to get circumcised. You can trust in Jesus Christ, but if you're not following the law, you're not going to get in. The very first council, the very first um, major meeting of the common Christian world at the time was in Acts chapter 15. And it was over this very issue. What does a Gentile have to do to be saved? And James comes to the conclusion after Peter's Excellent dissertation. They come to the conclusion by we're not going to trouble the Gentiles with these things. They they are not saved by these things, neither are we. As a matter of fact, James says, why would we put a yoke of bondage on them that our fathers could not bear? Because he knows it's not just the physical circumcision of a male that brings about eternal life. You would have to follow every single piece of the law. And if you offend in one point, you've broken all. James goes on to say that in his letter in chapter 2 and verse 10. So he understands this position. And it's important that we understand, as Paul is speaking to the Gentiles here, this is where they they were viewed by the world around them. And then in verse 12, it says, that at the time, ye were without Christ, you were without the Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What does this mean? They did not have access to the law, to the teachings that were available to them. They could still get saved, though. There's many instances in the Old Testament of Gentiles being grafted in as a result of their faith in God. Verse 13 is a different change now. Just like you saw in verse 4 where it says, but God, there's another transition here about who they were by nature before Christ. Then he says in verse 13, but now... What's the now mean? Now, because, because you're saved. Because you've trusted in Christ. These are promises that are true of them. And folks, if you're here tonight and you're not Jewish, these promises are true of you as well. But now in Christ Jesus, you, ye who uh, sometimes were afar off, are made nigh. And how are we made nigh? By the blood of of Christ. Christ is defined here. Remember, when you see that word Christ, this is a position, the anointed one, the Messiah. But was Christ defined by Paul? Absolutely. He said it earlier in the verse. Look what it says. Christ Jesus. I want you to hold your spot here and go to Hebrews chapter 9, okay? Hebrews chapter 9 In verse 23, excuse me, 22, we'll start in 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood without shedding of blood is no remissions. Now you might think, well, that should say for sins, but no. In our uh, confession of faith that we say, if you look closely, when we quote this verse, the italics end after remission and we, we add for sins. But it's implied here, look at 23. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, you need to look at this here, for us. I want you to go to First uh, Timothy in chapter two. Hold that idea here, or excuse me, not that idea, that that phrase that we just saw that Christ went in for us, and then look at First Timothy chapter two in verse four who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator. A mediator is someone who goes to mediate a situation. They go for another person. They represent another person before an authority or a power. There is one God, one mediator, and here are the parties in which there is mediation between God and fully righteous, cannot sin, cannot accept sin in heaven, and men who are, by very nature, sinners. (laughs) And who's the mediator? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus has this position as a mediator. We can say it this way. He intercedes for us. We stand now in our sinful nature, but spiritually we are positionally in Christ. We are declared righteous. This is the beauty of that word justification. But it didn't happen just because Jesus lived a perfect life, nor did it happen because he died for us. It happened because he shed his blood, and that blood was applied. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. All the things that happened in the old testament on the sacrificial level were pointing to what jesus would do and i hope you understand what i mean by that his death is just as important the sinless life is just as important but god has accepted that payment for our sin we are now who were afar off were made nigh by what by our good works if that were so don't you think it would say that here it doesn't say that. We're made nigh by the blood of Christ. Go back to Ephesians two thirteen. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes, ye, uh, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh in the blood of Christ. Verse fourteen. For He Jesus is our the saved person. Jew or Gentile, He's our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. lot I want to show you here. Look in Romans chapter 5, in verse 1. You can hold your spot in Ephesians. We're not going to go away from that tonight. James, could you do me a favor and uh, grab a, a cup of water for me, please? Thank you. I forgot to bring it up. Ephesians, or Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It's on page 1197. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus is our peace, we see this proven by what he said in Romans 5 as a part of our justification. The moment that we believed, we are at peace with God. Verse 2, by whom Jesus Also, we, the believer, have access by faith, that's the method, into this grace wherein we stand, this is where we are right now, and that doesn't change, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Who gets the credit for this? God. Who gets the glory for this? God. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 14. For He is our peace. Who hath made both one. We should be able to see that in other portions of Scripture. This is not a brand new thing that Paul is revealing. And he does show that. So, hold in Ephesians and go to Galatians chapter 3. When he says, Who hath made both one. This is of the circumcision and of the uncircumcision. He's made a new thing. Now in Ephesians chapter 3, he's going to reveal this new thing is... Jew and Gentile together in one body, Jesus Christ. This is why we can see dispensationally, where the rapture is not, excuse me, the tribulation is not for the church. It's a separate thing. Aren't you glad to be born in the time and, and live in the time that you're living? Seriously. Galatians chapter three, look in verse 26 through 29, "For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you, as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And that baptism is explained in Romans chapter 6. There is neither Jew nor nor, nor Greek. You could say here, not to change God's word, but a common description of a Jew would be the one of the circumcision. The one of the Greek would be the one of the uncircumcision. And if you peek back over at Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 11, he said, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands. So Paul used these descriptions of a Jew and of a Gentile. Go back to Galatians 3 in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. So whether you're a free man or whether you're an indentured servant, a slave, Doesn't matter. If you put your faith in Christ, you're in a new thing. This this is the body of Christ. There is neither male nor female. Now, don't mutilate that like they're doing today. But this is important because in the time in which they're writing here, there were classes. Males had different privileges and rights that women did not. So it wasn't saying this is only for men and the women have to do something else. In the worship that was going on, In in Paul's time, in the worship that was going on, there was a section where only the women could be in the temple, and only the men could go further. There are still modern Orthodox synagogues today where there is an outer court just for the women. They stay completely away from the men. When I've I've been to Israel twice, when you go to the Wailing Wall, there's a side for the women, and there's a side for the men. There's a big partition between them. The men have a nice library; they have bathrooms over there. The women do not. There's a separation. You put your faith in Jesus Christ in this age. doesn't matter if you're male, female, bond, free, Jew, Gentile. You're in. And you're in permanently. Look at what it says. For ye are all one. In what? Calvary Community Church? The Presbyterian Fellowship? The Lutheran Fellowship? In Christ Jesus. I had somebody email me and they said, why don't you just, why don't you just stick to a denomination? Come on. We Just pick one. I, no. I say no to that. Because there there's unintended baggage that gets hitched to you when you do that. You want a denomination? What kind of group are we? We're the body of Christ. And I can show you that in the Bible. And I'm sure every denomination could pick a verse that describes one thing about them, but I think that describes everything about us. Amen? We're in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, he's arguing from a truth here, Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The same promise that was made to Abraham. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, bond-free, male, female, you're grafted into this promise. You're a part of that seed. Who's the seed? Jesus Christ. We're found in him. We are really running out of time. So go back to Ephesians here. Ephesians chapter 2, we're in verse 14. Because we don't have time here, that next phrase where it says and have broken down the middle wall of partition between us you see that beautifully described in second corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 through 21 that's the ministry of reconciliation what was the wall of partition oh you're not a jew okay so you're not you're there there was a birth wall you were not born into this well there was also a greater wall doesn't matter if you're jew or gentile and that was sin that's been broken down we have peace now 15 having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. This is important to see and understand. There's a brand new thing that happens, and it's only in this age. And we have the the wonderful privilege, that word is thrown around a lot today, but you and I have a wonderful privilege to be in this. There are things that will only be true of the body of Christ for all of eternity. Isn't that wonderful? That we get to partake in that? Verse 16, And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. What separated is now gone because of the accepted sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he came "and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. Them that were nigh, the Jew. How are they nigh? Romans 10 explains this. Romans 10 explains this. It's, Romans 10 is for the Jew. That's not to say the Jews get saved by confessing it with their mouth. The Jews recited the truth, but they were missing the point. And so Paul is saying, you guys are the closest to it. But the ones who are furthest away, it's available for them too. That's, that's the best definition of grace for everybody. And the Lordship Salvation guy gets offended by that. The legalist gets offended by that. Why? They get offended because they've elevated their good works. They've elevated themselves. They get puffed up with knowledge, which is exactly what knowledge does. It puffs up. You ever boil water or you got some ramen in there or noodles or something and you don't pay attention to it? What happens over a period of time? You hear... (coughs) run to the kitchen spilling over and you go man i do this every time that's the person that gets puffed up in knowledge they just get out of their depth i can see that illustration is really striking with you (laughs) probably we all have done that look at verse 18 for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the father and this spirit everyone has received look in chapter 1 and verse 13 it's just across the page there. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye what? That's the past tense of Pistuo, believed, ye were sealed with what? That Holy Spirit of promise. So when you tie over to what he's continuing in his discussion in chapter 2 and verse 18. We have access by that Spirit which were sealed unto who? The Father. That is pure 100% holiness. Moses had to have a veil when he was on Mount Sinai. He came down and he was glowing from that. We have access because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And this is where I get my message title here in verse 19. What you see is called, We Are Known. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And we can see a very good illustration of what's happening in our country today with immigration. You can see this. There are people who come into the country illegally. Regardless of what they go do, there are steps, there, there should be steps, that are taken care of and seen too, that a person becomes a citizen. And if they're found in the country, well, it depends on what state you're in nowadays, but if they're found to be here improperly or illegally, then they are not there to be removed. And that's how you maintain the quality of the people in your country. You do not get into the household of God by something that is illegitimate, which is any works-based method. Now, because of the blood of Christ, that's been applied to your sin payment. God has justified you. We're a new creature. And now we are. You're not someone here who's on a temporary visa. You're not somebody that needs to wait until they get their citizenship. You are, as the Bible says, look at how it describes you, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. This is very important to understand. We are not just bystanders. Uh, bystanders we are people who are actually in the family we are of that household imagine that you know jesus's last name was christ we are of him we're in the family that's a beautiful guarantee we're not a guest at the at the party our dad's hosting it (laughs) it's his house that's exciting how does all this happen verse eight and nine For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I heard this one time, it's coming to my mind, when I was in Georgia. We are children of the king, so we should use the language of the court. I love that phrase. It's so good. It just (laughs) nails it. Can you imagine who I heard it from? Yeah, it was Freddie. And if he would have said, is that good? I would have said, that's good. Because it's so accurate. We should not live as those who are outside the court. Outside the camp. We're children of God now. Should act like him. But there's more good news here leading in these last three verses and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those are the ones who, who went forth and shared this message through, through progressive revelation to where we are today. Jesus Christ being uh, himself being the chief cornerstone. He's the foundational stone that Israel threw away. They threw it away, just like they did back in the Old Testament. They, where's the cornerstone? Oh, the one that we rolled down the mountain? Yeah, where is it? At the bottom of the mountain. Well, go get it. <laughs> you made a mistake. And that's, that's the significance of Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his first message. After being sealed with the Holy Spirit, and he says, the men were, or the scripture describes it, Luke is the writer. He says, They were cut, excuse me, um, they were pricked in their conscience. What must we do? And that's why Peter uses the word metanoia. He's not saying turn from your sin. There's it's not it's not on the table. He's saying, change your mind. That cornerstone that you've thrown away, it's Jesus. Believe on him in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple of the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. The picture of the temple in Israel is a picture of you and I now. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I, the, the last two times I've been to Israel, I've been able to go to the the israeli museum i think is what it's called twice i went both times there's one part there it's one of my favorite parts about going to jerusalem where they have a giant and i mean it's huge model of israel or excuse me of uh, jerusalem and i mean it's down to the t and they have in the middle of it they have the temple on mount moriah there and you can walk around this huge lot And you can see in different places it describes to you this what you're looking at here. It highlights it on a little placard there, and it says that represents the uh, commonplace. This was the place place where they would take the ritualistic baths to clean themselves before they would go in. And I look at all that, and this last time that I was there, I was just there by myself. We had, um, I think Patty was with us, and Rick, and the girls, and a couple others were there. And I'm looking at this, and this time... What struck me is that God tells me through his word that the same caring concern he had for the temple there, where they had to dwell in, like if, if, if the temple was not in the proper conditions, people were going to die. I am described now as the temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. That should make, and it did in that very moment, and it, it's still, it makes me sensitive to my sin. Because it's like defaming the physical temple. If God took it that seriously for the physical temple, do you think he's changed when we defile our bodies with sin? Nothing's changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that. And a lot of people say, oh, well, that's just for fornication. Well, what is fornication? Same thing that a lie is. Same thing that uh, gossiping is. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And those who abuse this temple can expect destruction. Not in hell, but the destruction of this body. What does that mean? God will take me home? Um, Yes. That is what that means. And that should be a concern. Because if he takes you home before your time, you've run out of time to serve him. You've run out of time to be rewarded by him. Read this here in verse 20 in chapter 3. Now unto him, excuse me, that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's who we are found in, Jesus Christ. And he will receive all the praise. All the honor and all the glory. We are known by God because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's good stuff. If you're struggling with identity, you're struggling with value, look at how God describes where we're placed. Don't let the world rob you of that. You're a child of the king, use the language of the court. I hope you've enjoyed our study tonight. I hope it's been beneficial to you. You can study the Bible like this, just go verse by verse. And when you hear something that you thought you heard in another place, look it up. See if it is in another place. It'll be help you to see how the Bible speaks very clearly and it's all connected properly. I'm going to let this hand represent you and me and my wallet represents sin. Put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. You have to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven, but we all fall short. That's the very definition of being a sinner. God loves us, but this sin separates us from Him. Something has to be done about it. There's no amount of good works. We just looked at how we are positionally found in Christ and it has nothing to do with our good works or commitment or promises or actual financial gifts or whatever it is. That doesn't save us. Somebody needs to die. This hand represents Jesus Christ and what Christ did is He lived that perfect life being fully God and fully man. He interceded for us He paid for that sin. The moment that He did is described as His last words on the cross. It is finished. The payment of sin is complete. He died and He rose again three days later just as He said He would. And because He has risen again, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, his shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins, they can also know that they one day will rise again from the dead. And it's exciting to know we're living in a time where we could bypass death but many of us will die. If the rapture doesn't come, not one of us here is going to live forever in this body, and you don't want it. Amen? We need something new. God has given to that. So what must I do to be saved? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You believe on Jesus Christ, you receive the free gift of everlasting life. And this is gone. Don't let it come back and live with you. You're removed from it. And this is the, pro- the, the progress of progressive sanctification. But even if you finish poorly, and that's a, that would be a shame on you if you did, you still have eternal life if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you're watching on the internet tonight and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, I would love to pray for you. Please leave a comment and we will reach out to you. Or send us your email and we can send you something in the mail. We greatly appreciate those who are watching on the live stream and faithfully share this broadcast. It's a blessing and an encouragement. For those of us that are here in the room today, I pray that you understand what the Bible says about who you are in Christ. That it makes you sensitive to your sin and that you seek to do what God is telling you to do. The only way you can know what he's telling you is by reading his word. and I. As I have said so often before, I pray that you would be people of the word. Father, thank you for this gift tonight. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Bring us back here safely. We pray for uh, Sandy's celebration of life on Wednesday. Lord, I just pray that your will be done. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.